Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about hematologic malignancies with Dr. Francesca Montanari. Dr. Montanari is an assistant professor of clinical medicine and hematology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Francesca, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about hematologic malignancies, what they are, how common they are, and how people who have a hematologic malignancy can present. So hematological malignancies include all type of blood cancers. So these are cancers that can affect the bone marrow where the blood cells are made, blood cells, lymph nodes, and other parts of the lymphatic system. And uh, typical um, hematological malignancies or blood cancers are leukemias, lymphomas, myelomas, and other that are rarer, such as myelodysplastic and myeloproliferative disorders. So these diseases uh, represent less than 10% of all the cancers. Um, there are approximately 1.8 million new cases of cancer per year in the United States and approximately 180,000 cases of blood cancers. So every three minutes, one person in the U.S. is diagnosed with, with one of these diseases. Approximately half of the blood cancer are um, lymphomas, uh, which account for 86,000 cases per year. Um, they're further down divided in Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin, which are the most common. And then non-Hodgkin are classified uh, in over 60 distinct subtypes. So as you can imagine, numbers tend to become very, very small for the most uh, rare of these uh, subtypes. About a third of the blood cancer are leukemias, uh, approximately 60,000 cases per year, and less than 10% are myelomas. So symptoms and manifestation of these diseases can vary. Um, there is a very wide range of symptoms uh, that can be associated with any of these blood cancers, which depends on the specific disease uh, and the localization. For instance, lymphoma can present with the so-called B symptoms or constitutional symptoms, which are very aspecific, fever, chills, night sweats, unintentional weight loss. Um, but there are a lot of other symptoms which depend on the specific uh, localization of the disease. For instance, there are lymphomas that like to affect the, the gastrointestinal tract and they cause gastrointestinal disturbances. Other lymphoma can involve uh, the eye or the structures around the eye causing trouble with vision or they can affect the skin. And as you can imagine, depending that, uh, upon the organ that is involved, you can have very different symptoms. Leukemia tends to present with symptoms related to the bone marrow involvement and the cytopenias, such as fatigue from, from the anemia, bleeding from low platelets, infection from low blood white cell count, and, and multiple myeloma 
also can present with fatigue from anemia, infection, and bone pain. But bone pain is more is more distinct si- um, sign of, of a multiple myeloma as it involves uh, the bone structure and can cause pathological fractures. Uh, lethargy and other gastrointestinal symptoms related to the hypercalcemia also can be present at presentation. So that seems like just a, an amazing potpourri of, of symptoms and, and sites that these blood cancers uh, can, can harbor in. So, you know, how, how do patients find out that they, they have one of these hematologic malignancies? I mean, it seems like they can be anywhere from your bone marrow to your eyes to your gastrointestinal tract. And the symptoms can be completely nonspecific, like a little bit of fatigue um, to to having visual loss or, or gastrointestinal problems. So h- how is the diagnosis actually made? Um, so the diagnosis is uh, typically made... Um, it depends on 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 the, on the on various scenarios. Some of these blood cancer tends to be indolent, very slow growing, and might be picked up incidentally um, just performing some routine blood work by the primary care physician in in occasion of the well being visit. So a new finding of uh, um, presence of increased protein in the blood might. Um, raise the suspicion of a myeloma and uh, and determine additional testing that uh, eventually lead to the diagnosis. Um, in other cases, the symptoms can be uh, more prominent and, and therefore, um, as part of the initial uh, investigation by the primary care physician, um, certain uh, signs and symptoms might be detected that raise a flag for this condition and further evaluation um, include um, imaging studies, um, a more in-depth kind of blood work, and eventually the evaluation by a blood cancer specialist. And so once that happens, once they they kind of come to you as a, as a blood cancer specialist, what's the next thing that happens? So typically, we we do really need to run um, uh, a little bit more workup, and that includes um, imaging studies, which can be anything from MRI or CT scan, or even a newer form of CAT scan that is called PET scan, where we use glucose to track down in the body where there is uh, um, an increase in the metabolic activity that might reveal the presence of a, of a cancer. Um, ultimately, the diagnosis is made uh, through uh, a pathology. So we would need um, a tissue sample, um, either from a lymph node or from the bone marrow, um, or um, sometimes a, a, blood, um, a blood sample is, a, is, a, is a sufficient, where we do run specific tests to detect these, uh, these diseases. And once we have a pathological confirmation, Information, um, then other tests might be warranted um, depending on the nature of, of the disease. And typically, these tests help us with uh, prognostication and with the staging. 
So, so let's talk about that. How do we determine prognosis? And in general, um, what is the prognosis of these hematologic malignancies? Understanding, however, that that this is a varied group of of diseases that are lumped into this basket term. Right. So there is a lot of variability in the behavior of these diseases. Um, as we have uh, improved our um, knowledge um, in the um, biology and uh, mechanism that drives these diseases, um, we have um, a very complex uh, um, uh, way to assess uh, uh, prognosis. And prognosis typically depends uh, uh, on very uh, general um categories and information, so such as uh, the burden of disease at presentation, the performance status of the patient plays a big, big role at the presence of comorbidities uh, or um, end organ um, damage from the disease. And, uh, and then there are um, other markers that we um, uh, gather from the pathology evaluation and from uh, the genetic makeup uh, through molecular studies. And based on uh, um, each, each disease as a specific list of uh, um, features that we pay attention to when we determine the risk stratification. And ultimately, based on all this uh, information, uh, we determine what is the best treatment approach. And so, so what is the treatment approach for these cancers in general? Right. So th the treatment approach, um, it's, it's very um, variable. Um, so first of all, the most important, um, one of the points that I'd like to make is that, as I mentioned, the behavior of blood cancer uh, is very variable. There are um, blood cancers that are very indolent and slow growing, and we don't necessarily start treatment upon diagnosis. Um, these diseases are considered generally not curable, but very, very manageable and treatable with, uh, um, with certain drugs. And the most important thing upon diagnosis is uh, the determining if a patient requires treatment or can be watched um, uh, expectantly. Um, we call that watchful monitoring. And um, once um, there is a, an indication, when, when therapy is warranted, then the decision of which kind of therapy depends on the specific type of disease, um, the staging of the disease and the predicted behavior, um, which is usually based on the genetic makeup of the specific blood cancer. Another important factor uh, that helps the decision about the best strategy is uh, based on patient's characteristics, such as uh, uh, the age, the performance status, the presence of medical condition, which might have an impact on the tolerability of the treatment. And um, if transplant, if bone marrow transplant can be used for uh, this specific patient as part of the treatment strategy. Another factor that is very important is patient's preference. Now that we have multiple therapy options which offer similar, re, uh, similar results in the long term, but differ in, the term, in terms of administration modality and side effects profile, 
patient preference might play a big role in the final decision. And uh, um, during the past year, there is another and a fourth factor that has played a big role in our decision making, which has been the COVID pandemia. So having um, an aggressive blood uh, cancer that requires treatment um, has not had um, had any variation based on the presence of the COVID pandemia. But for those diseases that are more indolent and not immediately life-threatening, we have been shifted away from using certain drugs or certain strategies to maintain the disease in remission for longer period of time unless there was an overall survival benefit in order to minimize the risks of increasing the severity and mortality from, from the infection. Yeah, so there's a, there's a few points there uh, that you mentioned that I want to pick up on. And the first is that, that some of these diseases are, are fairly indolent and may not require treatment, this kind of expectant, watchful, waiting approach. How do you determine um, whether that's the case for patients, particularly when you mentioned that that many of these cancers are not, quote, curable, but they're manageable? Um, and do patients get some anxiety over the idea that they may have a cancer that we're simply watching? That is correct. So it's very important that uh, um a clear communication with the patient that initiating treatment earlier for this kind of cancer does not necessarily translate in a prolongation of their life expectancy and that um, the goal of the treatment in their case is to minimize the toxicity related to the use of uh, certain agents um, and maximizing the effect in terms of uh, uh, allowing them to live their normal life without having any side effects from either the treatment or the disease. Yeah, so so important to have good communication. Well, we're going to learn a lot more about hematologic malignancies right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more with my guest, Dr. Francesca Montanari. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about head and neck cancers. Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers, and in many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Francesca Montanari. 
We're talking about the care of patients with hematologic malignancies. And Francesca, right before the break, we were talking about the fact that these hematologic malignancies are so varied. They're varied in terms of where they present, um, you know, some being in the bone marrow, some being in lymph nodes, some being in end organs like uh, eyes and GI tract and bone and other places. They're varied in terms of their clinical presentation um, and the symptoms that they cause. They're varied in terms of their clinical course, uh, some being very indolent and slow growing such that they wouldn't even warrant necessarily treatment um, and others being far more aggressive. Can you tell us a little bit more about the cancers specifically that you treat? Uh, Is there a certain type of these hematologic malignancies that you specialize in? Um, yes. So, um, in terms of blood cancer, I, I, uh, my research interest has always been uh, on the lymphoma side. So, lymphoma uh, by themselves, that they are the they uh, constitute the biggest uh, uh, part of the blood cancer. They're approximately half of all the blood cancers. But they're very diverse themselves. And we do typically consider lymphoma, either uh, we divide them into big categories, uh, Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin, and then furthermore into aggressive and indolent in the non-Hodgkin lymphoma type. And so my the focus of my research has been in trying to um better understand the biology of the more rare of these uh, lymphoma types um and uh, um to uh, based on the insights in in the biology to develop a new treatment strategies that are targeted um for these uh, less known subtypes in particular, the focus of my research over the past decade or so has been on post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorder, which are rare um, lymphomas that arise as a potentially life-threatening complication of solid organ transplant. These are lymphomas that arise in the setting of reactivation of infection due to the immunosuppressive treatment or uh, due to the chronic dysregulation of the immune system in the setting of chronic immunosuppression. And historically, the uh, prognosis uh, uh, of these lymphomas have been very poor because of um, inability to deliver um, full dose treatment and um, and due to the frailty and uh, um, risk of infectious complication that these patients experience with regular conventional chemotherapy. The risk of dying of infection during treatment in this population has been estimated around 30%, which is uh, extraordinarily high. And in order to try to minimize the complication from the treatment, um, I developed a risk stratifies uh, um, treatment adapted strategies, um, which are based essentially on um, um, induction on an induction phase where we do not use cytotoxic chemotherapy, but more a targeted uh, antibody approach. Uh, approach. And then we do reserve escalation to chemotherapy only to patients that do not achieve a full response on the 
um, least invasive uh, treatment. Uh, and with these uh, strategies, we have been able to limit the use of cytotoxic agent to um, less than half of the patient population that we do treat. Another area that I've been, uh, where I've been conducting research uh, um, is a T-cell lymphoma. Those are also very rare uh, lymphomas. They're much uh, rarer than the B-cell lymphoma, which are the most common non-Hodgkin lymphoma um, out there. And unfortunately, historically, uh, we have been using uh, a treatment algorithm, um, treatment that have been extrapolated from the B-cell counterpart. So not really specific to these subtypes of, of lymphomas. And the results are not as optimal as in the B-cell counterpart. So over the past few years, um, Four new drugs have been approved in the space for this, uh, uh, specifically for T-cell lymphoma. And one of the challenging that we have now are um, trying to identify what is the best sequencing of this agent and what is the best way to combine them to uh, improve the outcome of patients with the T-cell malignancies. Yeah, it sounds like in both of those scenarios, the the overarching theme is really personalizing treatment uh, to the patient's individual disease. So I wanted to just t- take a step back and, and talk a little bit more about uh, the intricacies of, of each of these. So with regards to the post-transplant lymphoma, help us to understand again um, how these lymphomas occur, because certainly there are listeners um, who may have gone through a solid organ transplant or may know someone who has, and these patients are on immunosuppressives. Um, and so does that immunosuppressive therapy automatically increase their risk of lymphoma? And is there anything that they can do to reduce their risk of developing lymphoma in that setting? That's a really good question. So we do, after the transplant, um, patient received um, different immunosuppressive treatment, which are um, related to the different kind of transplant that they have received. For transplants such as intestinal transplant, multivisceral transplant, the immunosuppressive treatment is much tougher and much uh, deeper than in patients that receive, for instance, a renal transplant where the immunosuppressant treatment required for the uh, recipient to accept the graft is, is much less. And uh, the first phase uh, in the first year after the transplant, um, there is, a, uh, we do see as a consequence of the immunosuppression, a reactivation of common infection and um, most important one is the Epstein-Barr virus, which is the virus that causes mononucleosis. Most of the adult population has been exposed by the adulthood to the virus. And the virus is dormant, is in a silent state in our body, and is kept at bay by our immune system. So conditions such as immunosuppression, where our immune system defense is lowered, allow the virus to thrive again and replicate. And uh, and the virus, this particular kind of virus, 
in the uh, absence of an immune system that fights it and keeps it at bay, is able to transform um, the blood cells into lymphoma cells. So um, typically in the first year after the transplant, most of the lymphoma that we do see are related to Epstein-Barr um, um, disease reactivation in the setting of the immunosuppression. The lymphoma that arise after one year are still can can still be linked to the Epstein-Barr virus, but approximately half of them happen without uh, a reactivation of uh, Epstein virus and they do not harbor the genetic material of the virus uh, and they're thought to arise in the setting of a chronic uh, immuno uh, dysregulation due to the long-standing immunosuppression. And so is there anything that people can do to limit that reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus? You mentioned that most adults have already experienced Epstein-Barr virus and so should have some degree of natural immunity to the virus, although they're on immunosuppressants. So has anybody looked at ways that uh, people who are on immunosuppressants um, can prevent that reactivation? That is a really good question. And uh, indeed, we have been... Um, we have been um, a part of the of these strategies uh, in the period after transplant include close monitoring of the EBV viremia uh, presence in the blood. So after a solid organ transplant, depending on the kind of solid organ transplant, there are um, um, algorithms. There are. Um, 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 there is a, um, a monitoring of the uh, EBV viremia, which is uh, which is done in certain cases uh, twice a month, uh, other cases once a month, depending on the nature of the immunosuppression, and preemptive strategies to uh, intervene. Um, um, Treating the viremia before the lymphoma appears have always been attempted. The results are not um, are not optimal though, because um, there is a lot of variation in the, the levels of EB viremia that is noted in patients post transplant, and not everybody that experiences a reactivation of the virus end up like developing a lymphoma, and therefore there is not a good guide guidance out there um, regarding on who to treat preemptively and who to uh, observe. When I was uh, um, at uh, Columbia University prior to joining the group here at Yale, um, I was uh, leading the effort to come up with, uh, um, with guidelines to um, help clinicians in the solid organ transplant team to um, troubleshoot um, these, uh, um, these problems, meaning when to check the BV viremia, at what intervals, and uh, what is uh, the threshold of the titers of the virus to consider uh, potentially um, uh, leading to, to a lymphoma, and when to um, utilize treatment to reduce that uh, virus level. Um, and it's still a discussion and, and a work in progress. And do we know what factors kind of trigger that 
that EBV viremia to turn into a lymphoma? Because potentially that's another place to intervene in, in thinking about, is there a way to potentially mitigate that transformation? That is an excellent question. And unfortunately, uh, the reason why um, EBV virus can turn in, vi- in vitro lymphocyte into malignant cells because it sort of, um, on one side, triggers the proliferation of these cells. On the other side, blocks an important mechanism that is called apoptosis by which the cell die. Uh, but alone is not able to induce uh, lymphoma in vivo. And uh, the thought is that there are, um, like in all the other uh, kind of cancer, it's a multi-step uh, process where the cells progressively gain additional mutation and uh, over time the addition of this mutation uh, together um, sort of cause the transformation into cancer. But it's not, um, we're not able uh, in 2021 to predict um, which mutation and when this mutation are uh, acquired. Dr. Francesca Montanari is Assistant Professor of Clinical Medicine and Hematology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.